views of the United States government. This is VOA News. I'm Michael Brown. AP correspondent Ed Donahue reports the United States is preparing new punishment for Russia. President Biden met with Navalny's widow and daughter in San Francisco. As you state the obvious, he was a man of incredible courage. And it's amazing how his wife and daughter are emulating that. The meeting leads up to an announcement of new U.S. sanctions against Russia. Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs Victoria Nuland described them as crushing, targeting not just those responsible for Navalny's death. The vast majority of them, though, are designed to uh, further attrit Putin's war machine to close uh, gaps in the sanctions regime that that he has been able to evade. Newland says Vladimir Putin believes he can wait out the West on Navalny and Ukraine. We need to prove him wrong. I'm Ed Donahue. For the first time in 50 years, a U.S. craft has touched down on the moon. We are on the, on the surface and we are transmitting and uh, welcome to the moon. But company officials at Intuitive Machines, a private company that created the lunar lander, say it was sending a weak signal. The U.S.-based company was striving to become the first private business to pull off a lunar landing, a feat achieved by only five countries. The craft is part of NASA's effort to commercialize moon deliveries ahead of the planned return of astronauts. There hasn't been a U.S. spacecraft on the moon since the end of NASA's Apollo program. Senegalese President Macky Sall said on Thursday that he will end his term in April, as expected. But he didn't give a new date for the presidential election originally scheduled for Sunday. The Constitutional Court ordered the government to set a new election date as soon as possible. But Saul's government still hasn't set a date. For more news, please join us at voanews.com. This is VOA News. Israeli strikes in Gaza killed 48 as fears mount over humanitarian crisis and West Bank violence. We get more on the story from AP correspondent Karen Chalmers. A flurry of seven Israeli strikes hit Rafah, one of them flattening a large mosque and devastating much of the surrounding block. Footage from the scene showed Al Farouk Mosque pancaked to the ground, with its concrete domes tumbled around it and nearby buildings shattered. Another strike hit a residential home in Rafah, sheltering the Al Shire family, killing several people, including a mother and her child. The Israeli offensive in Gaza continues amid a worsening humanitarian crisis and potential starvation in the territory. The foreign ministers of 26 European countries have called for a pause in fighting, leading to a longer ceasefire. They urged Israel not to take military action in Rafah that they say would worsen an already catastrophic humanitarian situation. I'm Karen Shamas. Doctors and potential parents are wondering what to do next with a ruling by Alabama State Supreme Court on frozen embryos. We get the details from the AP's Jackie Quinn. Several medical facilities, including the University of Alabama at Birmingham, are halting their in vitro fertilization programs, with the state Supreme Court saying that frozen embryos are legally considered the same as children, and providers can be held responsible for their deaths. Equating an embryo to a child is scientifically unfounded. In Atlanta, Dr. Jennifer Kawas at Emory's Reproductive Center. Limiting the capacity of physicians to care for patients with infertility. But at the Fertility Institute of North Alabama, Dr. Brett Davenport tells the AP they'll continue providing services as usual. We will um, adjust our informed consents and re 
redo those with all of these patients. Some legal experts think the Alabama ruling is just the tip of the iceberg. I'm Jackie Quinn. Britain and its former partners in the European Union have struck a deal to cooperate more on tackling illegal migration. It's the latest sign of a thawing in relations between the two sides following Brexit. The British government said in a statement Friday that the UK border agencies and the EU's border and coast guard agencies Frontex will be able to access each other's intelligence to secure borders and tackled organized immigration crime. Relations between the two sides on an array of issues has been improving in the past few months. Ties were severely tested during the drawn-out divorce negotiations that followed Britain's 2006, or 2016, that is, vote to leave the EU. For details on much more news, we invite you to join us at our website, voanews.com. I'm Michael Brown, VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, February 23rd, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Senegal's president addresses the nation about the postponed elections. People are happy to hear the president about all these issues, but at the same time, what the president is proposing is not really a solution to the problem that we are experiencing because we want to know the date of the election. Talks to extend Zimbabwe president's term in office generates a debate. Malawi's president refuses to pay a ransom to hackers who attack the country's immigration system. Government will never pay the ransom money you have demanded after hacking the system. Because we are not in the business of appeasing criminals. And a rally tomorrow Saturday in Washington, D.C. to raise awareness about the violence in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Those stories plus something O'Malley's post in our Black History Month presentation are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Weeks after abruptly postponing the country's February 25th presidential election, Senegalese President Macky Sall spoke to the nation Thursday night. He assured the country that April 2nd, 2024, will be the end of his presidency as mandated by the Constitution. But Senegalese political analyst Ibrahim Akan tells me that while Senegalese were trying to digest the president's speech, he failed to address the real concern of the nation, a new date for the postponed election. He said by Monday and Tuesday, a consultation will take place among all the stakeholders and they will propose a date. If the consultation is not able to propose a date, they will refer the matter to the Constitutional Council and the Constitutional Council will decide about the date. So why do you think the president came out to talk without a date for the election? Well, I think what the president is trying to do is really, he doesn't want to take a decision because the decree that convened the people for the February 25, 2024 presidential election was taken by himself without any consultation. As we have been saying, the president's term expires on April 2nd. So who is going to rule the country comes April 2nd? Well, first he confirmed that by April 2, he will be leaving the power. He said if the Monday and Tuesday consultation set a date and that date allow uh, the election of the next president, 
he would be happy to hand over the power to that president elected. If not, by the 2nd of uh, April, the Constitutional Court will also determine who will be the next president of Senegal. But I just need to take uh, your audience that that issue is already resolved by the, our Constitution. If the president is not there, the president resigns, or there is no longer a president in power, the Speaker of the Parliament replaces the president and will be there for only three months until the new president is elected. The president spoke at night uh, when kind of late there. How do you think Senegalese are going to react to this? The president didn't just talk about the date of the election and his departure. He talked about reconciliation among Senegalese. And for him, reconciliation means we forget and forgive all the wrongs that were done in the past. And for that, he promised that the parliament will adopt a law on amnesty. But we don't know yet which period is covered by the amnesty. He also said that uh, through the reconciliation process, Sonko and Jomaifai will be free. For the time being, people are still trying to digest. But from what I'm hearing, it's a mixed view about what the president said. People are happy to hear the president about all these issues because he was silent. But at the same time, what the president is proposing is not really a solution to the problem that we are experiencing because we want to know the date of the election. So the administration should sit with the candidate and discuss the date of the election, but he wants to organize a kind of jambore, kind of dialogue for two days. What can you sort out in two days? Why an outgoing president is really going to organize a kind of consultation for everybody? So I think for me, part of all this drama was just a kind of way of trying to get a law on amnesty that will help to protect some of the people who did wrong things during his presidency. Ibrahim Khan is a Senegalese political analyst. He was speaking with us from the capital, Dakar. Malawi President Lastro Chakwera says his administration will not pay a ransom to hackers who have prevented the Department of Immigration and Citizenship Services from uh, printing passports for the past three weeks. Chakwera said in Parliament Wednesday that the cyber attack has compromised the country's security and measures are in place to identify and apprehend the attackers who are demanding millions in ransom. Some analysts, however, doubt the president's statement. Lamek Masina reports from Blantayo. The Department of Immigration and Citizenship Services in Malawi stopped printing passports weeks ago after it announced in January that it was facing technical glitches. The situation left hundreds of passport applicants stranded and rights groups have vowed to hold mass demonstrations if the glitch isn't resolved within days. But on Wednesday, President Lazarus Chiaquera told Parliament the suspension is because of what he called digital mercenaries have hacked the immigration system responsible for printing the passports. This is a serious national security breach. And though Malawi is not the first in the modern world to be the target of and suffer this kind of cyber attack, we have taken very decisive steps to regain control of the situation. President Chakwera on Wednesday said he gave the Department of Immigration three weeks to provide a temporary solution and resume the printing of passports while it is setting up the system. At that same event, he said that he had told the hackers never to expect ransom from the Malawi government. 
As long as I'm president, government will never pay the ransom money you have demanded after hacking the system. Because we are not in the business of appeasing criminals with public money, nor are we in the business of negotiating with those who attack our country. Malawi has faced a passport insurance challenges since 2021 when the government terminated its contract with the Techno Brain, which was a supplier of Malawi's passports since 2019. But in 2023, the government re-engaged the company on a temporary basis after it failed to find a replacement. But still, on many occasions, the Department of Immigration had to scale down production because of a shortage of materials or failure to pay outstanding bills to the supplier. Sylvester Namiwam is the executive director of the Center for Democracy and Economic Development Initiatives, whose organization is vowing to hold protests if the situation isn't resolved within days. He told VOA that he doubts the veracity of President Chakwira's statement on the hacking of the system. The president is creating the impression that he's talking to people that are so daft. He should have reviewed the identities of the hackers. And uh, in this modern day technology, he should have stated whether they are communicating using what mode. For example, if they are using computers, if they are using phones. Today's technology is easy to trace. Namiwa points to the reports circulating on social media and a local radio station suggesting that the contractor taking a brain deliberately shut down the system after noticing improper activity by suspected government agents. According to the local media reports, Technobrain is demanding millions of dollars in compensation from the Malawi government before it unblocks the system. When approached for comment, Tiwongi Chipeta, general manager for Technobrain in Malawi, would not deny or confirm the company's alleged involvement in the shutdown, saying she could not speak with the media on the matter. Lamek Masina, VOA News, Blanta. Friends of the Congo, a Washington, D.C.-based advocacy organization, is planning a rally tomorrow Saturday in Washington, D.C. to raise awareness about the violence in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo and to call for an end to what the group called the War of Aggression by Rwanda. Rwanda and the DRC have both accused each other of supporting rebels operating in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Viewers Douglas Mpuga reached Nels Kanwani, board director and immigration coordinator for the Congolese community of the Washington metropolitan area to find out more about the planned demonstration. The purpose of this uh, demonstration is to ask the U.S. government to take actions on war of aggression that Rwanda is, is pursuing against the DRC. Uh, we have seen the U.S. condemn the aggression uh, but we want actions because without actions, those uh, the statement condemning Rwanda would be meaningless. Um, so that would be uh, the purpose of our demonstration, and also to bring this to the public to show uh, what uh, all the massacres, the suffering that the people of the Congo are going through, are suffering from due to this war of aggression. As the U.S. government has called uh, on Rwanda not to support, give support to the M23 rebels, but have you had direct contact with the government itself apart from this public demonstration? 
we have been uh, sending uh, letters to them. We have been calling on the U.S. government in various ways on social media, and, and we've been sending memorandums and asking uh, the U.S. government to take actions. Again, I mean, we need actions. Without actions, those statements would be meaningless. The government in DRC in Kinshasa itself, how far has it gone in pursuing uh, that path of uh, trying to make sure that the eastern part of the country sees some peace? Yes, so we've uh, we've seen also some, some movement uh, in the DRC, but again, more action is needed there as well, uh, and we're pushing uh, the Congolese government to also make sure that uh, people are protected and make sure that this group, this rebel group, is neutralized. So there are ac- actions that are needed on, on both sides, and we're pushing uh, the U.S. government to, to take action. And, and what I mean by action is that the U.S. government has legal and diplomatic tools to sanction Rwanda. And this is the time uh, for the U.S. government to use those tools and take action and sanction Rwanda. And on the other side, with the Congolese government, they need to do the same in protecting their people. So we will have this demonstration. So it's Saturday, February 24th at 1 p.m. We will gather and start in front of the Rwandan embassy and we'll walk to the White House. Nels Kinwani is the board director and immigration coordinator for the Congolese community of the Washington metropolitan area. He spoke from Washington with my colleague Douglas Mpuga. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm James Butte in Washington. Today is Friday, February 23rd. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley's post and our Black History Month facts. Public statements by some senior ruling ZANU-PF party members endorsing a third term for Zimbabwe President Emerson Mnagagwa have sparked a serious debate, with some saying it will further undermine democracy in the southern African country. Reporter Kuzanai Musenge brings us more. At a recent event to mark Zimbabwe's National Youth Day outside Mashingo City, some ZANU-PF officials publicly endorsed what had been just whispered speculation, the idea of having President Emerson Mnangagwa stay on beyond the two terms allowed under the Constitution. ZANU-PF Chief Whip Popurito Garepi told VOA that there are no instructions from the party on having its members in Parliament move to prolong Mnangagwa's tenure. He said people were just speculating based on slogans. Why don't we just wait for pronouncement by the party? For me, I think people are free to conclude the way they want, interpret those slogans the way they want. I don't think that is enough instruction for us as members of parliament to then make a decision. Nicole Beardsworth is a South African university lecturer and researcher on Eastern and Southern African elections and multi-party democracy. She told VOA that despite not publicly declaring his stance, Mnangagwa could want to extend his presence 
presidency. This move likely originated from the upper echelons of the party and was instigated with the knowledge of the president. Of course, within Zanu PF, it would need to come up through the provincial structures and appear like it is um, sort of a popular move. Two-thirds of both the House of Assembly and the Senate must approve a constitutional amendment to change presidential term limits. Without that two-thirds majority, a referendum is to be held. David Coltart is a lawyer, a senior opposition official, and mayor of Bulawayo, the country's second biggest city. He says Mnangagwa would face a constitutional hurdle to extend his term of office. In the run-up to the 2013 uh, constitutional referendum and in the process we used to develop the constitution, there was a broad national consensus that presidents should only serve two terms. That hasn't changed. Bear in mind that the 2013 constitution had a massive majority in favour of it and a key provision that they voted for was the two-term limit. Togarepi, the ZANU-PF chief whip, told viewer A that Mnangagwa is doing well as president, so it can be surprising if people want him to stay on. Reporting for VOA from Lawayo, I am Kudzanaim Sengi. It's time now for Daybreak Africa. Supposing here is something. Umale in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, something. Good Friday morning to you too, James. We begin the sport with football. Kenya says the country is ready to co-host the 2024 African Nations Championship Chan with Tanzania and Uganda and has already marked $4 million towards hosting the competition meant for players plying their trade on the African continent. Confederation of African Football Secretary General Veron Mosengo confirmed Kenya's commitment shortly after meeting with the Kenya's Cabinet Secretary for Sport, Ababu Nawamba. Minister told me, assured me that they are ready. We talk about the, the, the different stage of our reformation is still ongoing and uh, I'm happy to, to, to hear this from the, from the government. And now to Zambia, where a Zambian women's footballer has dined ahead of an Olympics 2024 qualifying march. Noreen Bitani passed away on Wednesday as confirmed by the Zambia FA at the age of 24. Bitani had been expected to travel with the team to Ghana for the qualifying match at the Accra Sports Stadium on Friday. And staying in Zambia, gender activist Beauty Hatebe, who owns a semi-professional youth soccer team, believes that football can keep young boys and girls off drugs and other social vices. In this interview with my colleague James Barty, Hatebe explains why she has continued to work with young people in communities in Chongwe district of Lusaka province, where she is sponsoring football teams for girls and boys. Why did you decide to want to own a football team? My decision came about when um, I saw a lot of young boys and girls indulging in uh, illicit activities. So because they are near my small holding, I thought I could have uh, something to do with them. And then I put them together and we agreed that we can start doing something. And luckily, just near my, my farm, there is a, a community school, and that is the football pitch that we use to train and uh, play when we are hosting the game. It's not easy to own a football team. Uh, you need equipment, you need this and that for the team to perform. Um, how are you doing on that? What I do is that um, 
I share the little resources that I have for the family. I share with the boys and girls on the pitch. For example, I personally buy balls and jerseys, but um, at some point I had um, a very big donation from um, some businessman from within Lusaka who gave me about four pairs of uh, jerseys and uh, about 15 balls at a go. Finally, in badminton news, over 500 players from 49 countries are participating in the 2024 Uganda International Badminton Challenge, which got underway on Wednesday. The five-day championship is being hosted at the Lugugu Indoor Arena in Kampala. And that's it for this Friday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It is back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a very good weekend. It is time now for our Black History Month and African History presentation for today, February 23rd. On this day, 1868, William Edward Bogart Du Bois was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. His mother raised him on her own, instilling in him the values of hard work and education. William did well in high school and got a scholarship to Fisk University. He also attended Harvard University and became the first African-American to get a doctoral degree from Harvard. One of Du Bois' achievements was the formation of the National Association for the Advancement of Color People. And AACP. He also helped to educate America about the problems of black people, but some criticized him for speaking only for the educated. Du Bois became discouraged about what he called the American situation and took up citizenship in Ghana in 1963. On August 27, that same year, Du Bois died in Ghana. On this day in 1895, former slave and diplomat William H. Hurd was named Minister Resident and Consul General to Liberia by President Grove of Cleveland, Heard was born into slavery in Herbert County, Georgia. While in Morovia, Heard also served as superintendent of the Liberia Annual Conference of the African Methodist Episcopal Church and built the first AME church in Monrovia, the Eliza Turner Memorial Chapel. And today in Black History, we want to tell you about Benjamin Banneker. Banneker was born a free black man on November 9th, 1731 in the state of Maryland. He was largely self-educated in astronomy and mathematics. Barnacle was later called upon to assist in surveying for the construction of Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. Barnacle's true acclaim, however, came from his almanacs, which he published for six consecutive years between 1792 and 1797. Barnacle died in his sleep on October 9, 1806, just a month short of his 75th birthday. Those are your Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 23rd.
And that's it for this Friday, February 23rd edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your week with us. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton, Washington, wishing that you will have a great weekend. We'll see you again on Monday morning. on things that matter to the hearts and minds of women. From right here in the nation's capital to on the ground from all over the African continent. We hear your voices. Our voices. Right here on VOA on 